This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm McKenna Mezzestrano, and today I will be interviewing Cedric Cohen-Scully about his new book, Don Isaac Abravanel, An Intellectual Biography, published recently by Brandeis University Press. Cedric teaches early modern and modern Jewish philosophy at the University of Haifa in Israel, and he is the director of the Busiris Institute for the Research of Contemporary German History and Society. Cedric, thank you so much for joining us. It's really a pleasure to have you here today. It's also a pleasure for me, McKenna. I'm glad to talk about my book and to address a broader audience. Great. Thank you. So before we start really talking in detail about your book, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your academic background. Yes, with pleasure. So I was born and bred in in uh, in Paris in a Jewish uh, post-68 family, uh, very um, far leftist and far away in many uh, aspects from uh, Jewish uh, religion. But still, I was in a very Jewish uh, context. And uh, during my my studies, uh, high school and studies in France, I was attracted to history and philosophy, but I had almost no... Uh, direct uh, interaction with uh, Jewish scholarship and uh, Jewish studies. And uh, during the beginning of my um, philosophical uh, studies at the Sorbonne in Paris, I had the opportunity to attend the classes of uh, Jacques Derrida. And I began to read about uh, Jewish philosophers and uh, became enthusiastic about the history of uh, Jewish philosophy. And uh, after finishing uh, uh, MA, BA, BAMA, and uh, other uh, uh, degrees in philosophy, uh, I decided to move to Israel to uh, really start a new life and a new uh, study of uh, Jewish uh, philosophy, uh, and that's basically the background of my uh, encounter 
uh, with Abravanel, I arrived in Israel and I was uh, looking for my way, uh, what kind of PhD I could write. And I had the opportunity to met a fantastic professor, Professor Menachem Lauberbaum. And uh, he told me, oh, you should maybe look uh, into Abravanel's writing. And uh, at that time, I have never heard of uh, Abravanel. And uh, I read a few biographies and, of course, the, the sources. And uh, I became more and more enthusiastic about the topic. So it, Abravanel became slowly but surely my way both into uh, Jewish studies and into uh, Israeli academic uh, society. And uh, slowly but surely, I, 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 made my, I wrote my PhD at the Tel Aviv University and uh, um, continue my, my study about Abravanel and Renaissance. And um, in the making, I understood that I could uh, not only make a shift to Jewish studies, but also bring my uh, French and uh, general philosophical background into the Jewish studies. And that's uh, basically what I tried to do uh, in my uh, studies of Abravanel, in my book, and uh, in my life, and uh, I, this is basically uh, my background now. I'm, I have the opportunity to teach at the University of uh, Haifa, and I'm trying to uh, merge uh, these different aspects of my life and, and of my uh, intellectual background. Great. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, as we will see, I think later in our discussion and that I hope people can appreciate from what we talk about is that I think that actually a a wide or or broad range of philosophical knowledge is actually, you know, one might even say it's really necessary to fully appreciate and understand Abravanel, who was so innovative and far reaching in his own work and in his own education. So I'm sure that all of those various studies really benefited you as you began to approach this very you know, like I said, this very diverse and intellectual scholar. So we'll get to that more in a minute. Um, before we get there, I thought actually that we could start with just a little bit of um, Abravanel's family history. So Don Isaac, or Don Yitzchak in Hebrew, Abravanel, um, was born in Lisbon, but his family had actually immigrated there from Seville. Is that correct? Yeah, it's completely correct. Yes, the, the story of the Abravanel is really... The story of movement from Castile to Portugal and then back from Portugal to Castile and after the expulsion uh, to uh, the Italian peninsula and so on. Yes. Right. So, and, and that's actually the structure of the book, just so everybody knows, is that it really follows that kind of migration and all of the work and political activity that Abravanel conducted in those various places. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about Abravanel's family, his his forebears, um, maybe some of their activity in Seville, and then ultimately what led them to Lisbon. Okay. So uh, the Abravanel family is a family with a long tradition based in Seville, with a long tradition of 
um, financial services to the nobility, to uh, high uh, clerks, and to the kings uh, of uh, Castile. And uh, this had been their trades for uh, at least from the for, from the 14th century on, but surely even earlier, even, even though we have no real inform no real information about that. But they had uh, this mythology that they belong to the oldest, one of the oldest family that arrived in um, in Spain, in, yeah, in the Iberian Peninsula uh, after the destruction of the first temple. And they were really there from the beginning of the Iberian monarchy that, that were built there. So even if we have no way to check uh, these uh, tales or legends of the uh, Bravanel family, it is clear that they have this notion of being an ancient Jewish patrician family, uh, elitist uh, family, um, basically working for um, uh, nobility, kings, and high clergy uh, in a variety of, of financial service services. And uh, what we uh, learn uh, basically by the end of the f of the 14th century is that the Abravanel family, uh, on the one hand, was very uh, much uh, accepted. Uh, we have some uh, interesting dedications uh, of books of uh, rabbis uh, praising uh, the grandfather of Abravanel, uh, Samuel uh, Abravanel, for his support to uh, Jewish scholar and Jewish rabbis and, and rabbis and also... Um, for his own uh, Jewish uh, education and his search for uh, learning, Jewish learning. So they had this mixture of, on the one hand, um, financier, uh, and on the other, um, uh, being patrons of Jewish learning and themselves uh, quite uh, well taught and learned. Um, and this uh, mixture of uh, economic uh, knowledge and um, also a Jewish and uh, literary knowledge is to be felt from uh, the, the end of the 14th century. But we uh, hear that really in the last two decades of the 14th century, Samuel Abravanel converted to uh, Christianity. Uh, it was sold for a long time that this conversion had to do with the 
1391 uh, pogroms that were uh, throughout Seville, Castile and Aragon. But actually, uh, historical research has proven that uh, this conversion was not made under pressure, but was a voluntary uh, conversion to Christianity of Samuel Abravanel uh, in order to uh, secure his uh, business and uh, his work uh, with the king. And this is the beginning, this split between the Christian uh, uh, part of the Abravanel family and the uh, Jewish one, is the beginning of the story of uh, Isaac Abravanel. Let's say his father, as far as we can reconstruct, uh, moved to uh, Portugal by the beginning of the 15th century, uh, pushed by two, two things, the split of the family in two branches because of the conversion. And of course, the 1398 uh, destruction of many a Jewish uh, communities throughout um, Castile and Aragon uh, that brought to a deep crisis and uh, surely uh, was another uh, trigger or another pushing factor to uh, immigration uh, to uh, the Portuguese uh, kingdom in which there were at that time no, persecu no, no persecution, no pogroms against Jews, and uh, there were uh, economic and financial and commercial opportunities for these uh, Jewish grandees um, uh, in... Um, in um, for these Jewish grandees in uh, in Portugal, um, I'm I think that's basically the reason for uh, this uh, move from uh, Castile to Portugal. This division on the one hand of the family and the persecution and the instability of uh, the remaining Jewish part of the Abravanel in Castile and their search for new opportunities in Portugal. Mm -hmm. I see. So I, I'm very curious about this, about the fact that Samuel Abravanel converted. Do we know how the family, whether it be his family at the time or the generations after him, specifically on the Jewish side of the family, perceived that conversion? Does any, does Abravanel, does Isaac Abravanel himself write about that or any of the other family members? Do we know what they thought? No, we, we only know that uh, on the one hand, they never speak about directly about the conversion. Uh, we have no statement of Abravanel himself about the conversion in his own family. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. Uh, on the other hand, we have a lot of uh, words and conception of Abravanel about conversion of Jews into Christianity. 
uh, into Christians. Um, and they seem to have regarded um, Samuel Abravanel as a prominent figure of which uh, they were proud, uh, even if he converted. So there, there's a mixed feeling. On the one hand, Abravanel developed a conception of conversion uh, that is linked for him to the situation of exile. Mm -hmm. Exile uh, is a situation in which Jews are not, uh, theologically speaking, directly under uh, divine providence and are therefore um, uh, confronted to... Uh, external uh, factors to historical factors to uh, external seduction and to uh, natural and historical and religious and political forces. And this produce uh, very naturally uh, conversion. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and also they had this vision that uh, conversion is also a selection process by which uh, only a very few Jews will at, the, will at the end participate in the redemption. And these Jews are a little bit the, uh, elected. Huh? So... Um, I think they develop a mixed, a mixed conception of themselves. On the one hand, they were very proud of the achievements of Samuel Abravanel, even if he converted. And on the other hand, uh, seeing themselves as uh, the Jewish remaining part of the family, they had developed also this notion of uh, the elected one. Uh, and this is something that will be all along uh, the writings of Abravanel from very early on until uh, after the expulsion of 1492. Wow, that is really fascinating, that duality. And I, and it's almost like I don't know, evolutionary, almost that selection process that you spoke about. That's really interesting. So I actually wonder, <clears throat> does that relate? I, I believe somewhere in your book, you described how Abravanel sometimes viewed himself as kind of participating in the revival of Sephardic Judaism. Is, is that at all related to this kind of ultimate selection for who would who would participate in in the redemption in the redemption ultimately are those things related at all yeah it be after 1492 it becomes very prominent this uh, vision uh, let's say that uh, if we are still considering the beginning of his life that is the fact that his father Yehuda Bravanel uh, brought uh, a part of himself, uh, his family, and also uh, his brothers, and let's say uh, the uh, the Jewish uh, Bravenel clan to uh, Lisbon. Um, 
in this moment, let's say until in this during the 15th century, the Abravanel uh, had this vision that they are uh, the aristocracy, the Jewish aristocracy uh, of uh, Iberia. On the one hand, because uh, they are so successful in finance, um, commerce, uh, and many, and also in uh, Jewish learning. So they uh, can uh, uh, assume uh, this position in the community, but also at the court uh, of the king or of uh, important uh, aristocrats or nobles in Portugal. That's one thing. And um, and the other, yes, they uh, developed this ideology that if they are so successful, if they are such an ancient family that is still uh, so prominent today, so they must belong to uh, the Davidic uh, family. They must be part of this messianic uh, branch of uh, the Jewish people, and they will take surely a prominent part in the redemption. But let's say that uh, during the 15th century, before uh, the expulsion, this was more uh, an aristocratic feeling, uh, uh, mixing uh, super, uh, economic superiority, uh, social superiority, uh, a sense of uh, education, and this idea that they uh, will take part in the redemptive process because they have so succeeded to uh, continue Jewish existence for such a long time and in such a successful way. Yes, that's, mm. that, was, that was the ideology before 1492. After 1492, there is a change. There is a, tree, a switch, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we'll definitely, yeah, we'll talk about that change, I'm sure, because we'll get to 1492 and all of the interesting and very important reflections that Abravanel has in his writings about that time period. Um, you actually, you just mentioned uh, education, and I wanted to uh, talk about that a little bit. As I said in the beginning, we see so many various influences beyond just, you know, of course, Abravanel had a knowledge of the of the Bible and other you know rabbinic literature, but we see even more influences beyond that in his writings. So, what do you think Abravanel studied um, in his younger years, and who who might have educated him? Yeah, this is this is a black hole. We have no uh, document about that. So, this is uh, a reconstruction. Uh, out of uh, economical documents and uh, out of uh, literary documents that uh, Abravanel and his entourage produced. Mm -hmm. So we don't know if he had any teacher 
but we can say uh, very clearly at least uh, a few facts. Abravanel could write perfectly uh, in Portuguese and in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. His letters in Portuguese, and I guess it was the fact also in um, Castilian, also at that time the two languages were different, but not maybe that different as uh, today. Um, he could write perfectly in both languages. And actually, one of his uh, letters in Portuguese was uh, conserved in a manuscript um, containing the best example of Portuguese historical and political prose. Okay? Mm-hmm. So that's the way we got uh, the Portuguese letter nowadays. Because even after uh, the forced conversion of Jews in Portugal, uh, Portuguese could still feel that this uh, Abravanel wrote very uh, excellently, uh, very good, uh, and... Uh, he was a fine example of what is called 15th century vernacular humanism. Mm-hmm. So he, he could not have learned that, uh, I guess, from Jews. Not that Jews could not write. Of course, there were a lot of Jews that could write. Uh, but I guess he had some training with uh, Christians, uh, maybe some um, Christian um, teacher. Uh, at any anyway, he was capable to read and to write uh, quite uh, on the same level as uh, nobles, as servant of uh, the nobility at his times. So that's one thing that is completely sure. And uh, this knowledge was not only his knowledge, I guess it was something that the whole family had. And surely not only from his generation, but surely uh, earlier. So they were trained as good uh, traders and financiers and um, called Jews to be able to speak right uh, in a convincing manner. And we have a very interesting document from the father of uh, Abravanel, um, a kind of letter of, rec- of economical recommendation to the kings that is also very interesting and very well written, maybe a little less than uh, his son, but still we feel the same feature. So he had uh, Christian education, that's for sure, uh, but he had also a typical uh, Jewish Iberian education uh, for his time. 
we know uh, that he was a book collector, a book hunter, um, and that he was very much interested, at least in two or three specific areas of, of Jewish learning. Um, Jewish um, medieval philosophy uh, and um, Jewish uh, rabbinic exegesis on the Bible. That's basically the two main uh, field of expertise that he developed. And in his way of writing later, we see that he was very much influenced by what is called nowadays uh, Sephardic Iyun. That is a mixture of uh, um, philosophy and uh, rabbinic hermeneutics of uh, Jewish sources, either the Talmud or, or, or uh, the Bible, uh, with a specific way of uh, raising questions and then solving them a little bit in a scholastic way. So, yes, Bravanel was uh, trained very carefully uh, in, two, in two directions, uh, in Jewish learning and uh, in uh, Christian uh, learning also. And of course, he was... He was a he was a financier, and he was uh, he was a um, a trader. He was um, making commerce, so that was also a third kind of aspect of uh, of expertise he had, uh, and in a very prominent way. So I think that these three areas of expertise are clearly his uh, background and his uh, education. We can still feel it. Although we don't know exactly who were the figure that uh, influenced him directly. That's mm -hmm. not possible to retrieve from the document. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And it's, you know, sometimes we just have to acknowledge what we know and what we don't know. But the truth is, I mean, it, we know a lot, of course, as you just pointed out, the documents that we do have really do seem to give us a very fascinating portrait of Abravanel's influences and his education. So actually, on the on the note of the um, of kind of the non-Jewish uh, influences on his education, that calls to mind for me um, some aspects of one of the major works that he composed in Portugal, which was Ateret Zekenim. And I wanted to know if you could speak a little bit about this work and specifically maybe talk about something interesting that you mentioned in your book, which is that some aspects of Ateret Zekenim are actually not only part of the Jewish literary milieu, but also the Christian one. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yes, yes, yes. I will, I will do my best. Yes. Um, Ha, this is uh, actually the first work of uh, Abravanel in um, in Hebrew. Uh, there are some little uh, tracts that uh, Abravanel wrote maybe before, uh, but this is basically the first uh, 
the first uh, literary or theological uh, work of Abravanel. It was written uh, in the 60s, uh, late 60s uh, of, uh, of the 15th century. And the central question in um, Ateret Skenim is uh, how uh, Jews can um, shape uh, their history, their fate, uh, with God's providence, but also without God's providence, that is being uh, submitted to natural influences at that time, uh, framed under the concept of fortuna, uh, the concept of uh, mazal uh, in uh, in Hebrew, uh, and this is a tract that deal with the question that what is uh, what is the um, the sense of Jewish history if we take into consideration that. This history is on the one hand um, divine history, and I will say a few words more about what are the figures that Abravanel means here. Mm-hmm. And on the yeah. other hand, this uh, divine history is very special because in one way there is this disappearing of God's direct influence and his delivering of Jews to uh, others' uh, natural influences. So the history of uh, Jewish history is a kind of cycle that moves from the centrality of of Eretz Israel, of Israel, in which, into which the Jews arrived and received a kind of maximum of divine providence. But this is a temporary moment. And then again, Jews are uh, delivered to uh, uh, natural influences, to astral influence, to historical influence, to social influence, to religious influences. And the question is how to uh, keep uh, Judaism in this moment of uh, eclipse of God, of, uh, of a stop, of direct divine influence. And this is uh, something that we have also uh, in the Spanish literature, Iberian literature of that time. Uh, the, basically, the debate at that time was a, a recovery of uh, many um, stoic uh, understanding of 
natural influences of fate, of fortune, and the tension between this uh, recovery of Stoicism in the Iberian uh, literature of the 14th and 15th century and Christian doctrine and Christian and Christianism. This tension between a natural understanding of uh, human life and history and society and uh, also uh, a way of shaping one's uh, goal vis-à-vis a divine the imitatio dei and the imitatio Christi. So, and we see that Abravanel is dealing in his own way uh, with the same questions. He uh, see the tension between natural influences and divine uh, history and background and um, and providence and trying to uh, develop a complex view in which, on the one hand, there is this uh, this um, uh, this moment of providence, but there is also the question of being delivered to. Uh, to natural influences and the capacity to, during this uh, experience of exile, keep the mitzvot and keep the Judaism if, even if there is no uh, direct retribution. Uh, and then, of course, this view of uh, later redemption, so the the, the cycle that is de- described in the book is a cycle of uh, moving from the center of Israel to exile and returning uh, with the redemption thanks to the capacity uh, to uh, accept in some way or face uh, natural influences and keeping uh, the Torah uh, as an internal law, but without direct uh, divine retribution. So that's basically the, the, the idea of the book. Uh, and we find here the tension between uh, providence and uh, fortune that is at the center of uh, Iberian literature of that time. So that we can say, on the one hand, it is completely Jewish, but still, if we confront it to Christian literature, it seems very, uh, very similar. It seems very similar questions, of course, framed uh, within uh, the perspective of the Jewish minority. Got it. Well, that is, I mean, there's so much going on there that I know that we could talk about, but I want to just be mindful of the many other things that we can talk about today. And so actually something that you said made me kind of think about this theme of exile. So after writing Ateret Zekinim, um, Abravanel does have a little bit of what you call a fall from grace in Portugal. So can you talk about a little bit, you know, and he kind of, you know, he has to, he experiences his own exile before, you know, there are these 
other more national exiles that he experiences later. But can you talk a little bit about what happened that caused Abravanel to have to leave Portugal and where did he go from there? Yeah. So if we try to keep in mind what I just said about Ateretskenim, I exile is the fact that you are um, necessarily affected by uh, the change of fortune. You are not like in the uh, living in the in Israel under God protection, but you are confronted with a change of fortunes, change of fortune, and this is exactly what happened to Abravanel. On the one hand, uh, they, his father and his whole family brings to Portugal an incredible uh, knowledge in trade and finance, and they become, and, and surely they bring also uh, money, um, and they become to be very, very successful. And surely Abravanel is not the only successful figure of the family, but this is surely uh, the prominent one. He is uh, a leading uh, financier of one of the greatest family in Portugal, and he's playing um, an important role in this uh, uh, Portuguese family. Um, and he receives a lot of uh, goods and uh, privileges in retribution for his work for this Braganza family, for this very important noble family. This brings him into politics, clearly. Mm -hmm. uh, this family was during the reign of uh, King Afonso the Fifth, very in very successful, uh, profited much from uh, the, the rule of the king, Afonso the Fifth. But when his sons arrive uh, to power, uh, is is becoming uh, King Juan Segundo, King Juan II. He wants to change the politics uh, of his father. He wants to affirm more his the the power of uh, the king vis-à-vis -vis the high nobility. He wants a not to be. Uh, a king between the nobility, but really a king above the nobility. Mm. And this brings to a clash. The Braganza family uh, wants to keep the privileges of the high nobility. And the king wants more influence uh, on um, on their lands, on the way they make justice, on many aspects of uh, the noble rules into their land. And there is a clash between two conceptions of uh, medieval monarchy. 
uh, one in which the king is prominent, becomes more and more prominent, and the other in which the king is prominent, but is very uh, also uh, dependent on the high nobility. And Abravanel is part of the second clan, this clan of the Braganza. He uh, he wants he, he is involved in a kind of plot or a kind of defense of this clan against the king, and he is caught uh, by the king and, and by his entourage. Uh, as being uh, one that is plotting against this new policy of the king. And his patron is arrested and, um, and executed. And he has to flee uh, Bravanel and, and later his own family uh, into Castile. And so we see in this uh, fall from grace, actually, that his very success, the fact that he could uh, be so influential in the Jewish community through his money, but also through his uh, Jewish learning, and the fact that he was also very prominent uh, at the court and in the nobility, this uh, brought him into politics, into a certain kind of politics, and when the uh, politic of the king is changing, suddenly he finds himself in the wrong camp and he has to flee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so then he goes to Castile, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And when he's when he arrives there, did people know of Abravanel, like, you know, from all of his political activity earlier, or did he really kind of have to start over? And kind of rebuild his political career there. No, when he arrives, he's already a very well-known figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, uh, he's 46, basically, when he arrives in Castile. He's himself a Castilian. Uh, he was all the time uh, in contact with Castile. Uh and um, he's also uh, um, uh, condemned for being in contact with Castile and for plotting against the king uh, in collaboration with uh, the Castilian clan. So, no, uh, Abravanel arrived uh, in Castile uh, and is uh, directly uh, accepted both by the Christian nobility and a little bit also uh, the um, the, Castile, the the Catholic kings uh, and of course the Jewish community. So no, he he really runs into uh, Castile, and this is a very successful uh, moment in which, on the one hand, he writes uh, one of, maybe his major work, uh, or the beginning of his major work, Commentary on the Former Prophet, and where he's always speaking that he has around him uh, many scholars that wants to hear the way he uh, interprets 
uh, the biblical books of the former prophets. So this is an image of uh, his social position uh, from the very start uh, in Castile. But also we see that uh, he is also uh, used by uh, one of the prominent family in Castile, the Mendoza family, and there also he received a very uh, prominent uh, financial uh, position. So he really succeeded uh, to switch very quickly from Portugal into Castile. And this has to do with what we spoke already together around Ateret's Kenim and uh, this capacity to see uh, life, history as a constant change of fortune. Mm-hmm. Um, there, are, there are always ups and downs, and Abravanel is, uh, and his whole entourage, uh, Christian and Jews, develop a notion of this change of fortune and the capacity to react as being uh, the proof that you are a leading figure, that you are in some way a Jewish noble or aristocrat. This capacity to react to changes uh, of fortune is becoming uh, the proof of your uh, capacity. And Abravanel is always speaking in favor of himself, shaping himself as the perfect uh, leader that is capable of reacting uh, time and again against uh, fortune, mm-hmm. changes of fortune. And, okay, so so one, this, this is a great segue into a couple of other things that I want to discuss. So first of all, I mean, I, I, I know from studying Abravanel's commentary myself that we actually find in his commentary a somewhat unusual amount of personal reflection. I mean, it's something that you don't see in other uh, in other biblical commentaries as often. Um, but, you know, specifically in terms of the commentary on the former prophets, you talk about a uh, lot, some several actually innovations in this commentary and certain ways in which the style of this commentary, which, as you said, he really, you know, he focused on in Castile was different than that of his predecessor. So I wonder if you could speak about that a little bit, some of the innovations and and why Abravanel's commentary is different than others that people might read. Yes. So the the commentary is on the one hand a continuation of what I spoke a little bit of this Sephardic Iyun that is a way of approaching uh, a Jewish sacred text from as much as possible angles, perspectives, uh, through raising uh, many questions and uh, referring to as much as possible to the varying views of Jewish or Christian scholars or uh, Muslim scholars 
And in this capacity of shifting views and shifting uh, from one question to, to another, you are in capacity to approach as much as possible the truth of the sacred text. So this is an ideology that is developed uh, in Castile, in Portugal during uh, the 15th century, and that Abravanel is uh, receiving and transforming. So what are, what are the points that he adds in this uh, incredible uh, commentary on the former prophet? First, you say it very correctly. He's adding uh, this biographical self-fashioning. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he choose, he's, he's capable of prefacing uh, his uh, commentary with a biographical text that explains why he has to write uh, this text at this very moment in his life. And this is in some way new, not completely new, but this is new. And this also changes um, the perspective of that he has on the whole uh, books of um, of the former prophet. He understands from this biographical and personal perspective why do you need to write? What is the scope of writing? So what is Abravanel bringing into uh, his commentary? is first a very new knowledge of rhetoric, literature, why we make books. That is something that he is capable of uh, articulating. For himself, he's capable of writing why he writes this book, he explained. This is a book of, in a way, I uh, succeeded in Portugal and then I have a change I had a change of fortune and by this change of fortune I understood that there is not only fortune but there is also providence and I want to reconnect to divine providence through interpreting the words of God so he is very articulated in the way of explaining why he writes, but he's also very articulated in the way of explaining why the, the biblical books were written. And this is an incredible novelty of a Brahmanel, this capacity to understand biblical books as books mm-hmm. with specific intention, that were uh, created with a specific intention, uh, uh, a long, uh, uh, long period that were written uh, one time, recorded in a, in, a pre, uh, in a primary versions and edited and edited a second time. So he had this very clear understanding that books are made that not only he is doing uh, books, but also in the past, 
books were made. So that's one uh, great novelty that he's bringing into uh, the study of uh, the former prophet. Another uh, novelty that he uh, is capable to bring uh, into, uh, um, into the studies, of course, uh, his historical and political uh, understanding of uh, the question raised all along the biblical narrative. So that's also very typical of his. He is um, dividing nar- the narrative uh, not only uh, according to verses or sections, but according to broad literary um, sections, um, stories, if you want. And all these stories are raising uh, questions, questions of uh, meaning generally, uh, religious, historical questions. So one very famous uh, example of that is, of course, uh, his commentary on the the foundation of monarchy uh, with uh, Samuel and 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 and, and Shaul, uh, and there his making of the story. The uh, of this historical study, a moment of reflection, of discussion, of scholastic discussion, whether monarchy is good or bad for the history of humanity and for the history of Israel. And this capacity to transform um, the stories of the Bible into uh, political, historical, philosophical, uh, theological question is really uh, what is amazing uh, in this uh, in this uh, commentary. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe another aspect uh, that is uh, very prominent is this mixing of sources that we have in the uh, in the commentary. We spoke of the dual education of Abravanel, Christian and Jewish. And in this commentary of uh, the former prophet, which is written in Hebrew, he is referring time again and again to uh, Christian sources, to Muslim sources, of course, and to a wide range of uh, Jewish sources, sometimes also plagiarating uh, sources from uh, his com- uh, contemporaries. So he, this book is an incredible compendium of sources that he is capable to, um, to build around sections of narration and of ideological or theological debate. Uh, and this is really... Uh, typical of Abravanel, and this is a transformation of the Sephardic Iyun into a historical, a rhetorical, a political Iyun inquiry into the Bible, and I think that this is uh, quite a remarkable shift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, actually, okay. I wonder, I mean, maybe you could speak about this. 
were did, were there any other Jewish commentators um, before or contemporaneous with Abravanel who had the um, the lifestyle that he did and the ability to really you know he because he could bring his political experience and his role um, in the courts into he could fold that into his analysis you know particularly of his commentary on works dealing with kings in the bible did any other commentators have that sort of life experience that they were able to incorporate into their work or or not really no there are there are of course other uh, many uh, many other examples uh, of course my monitors and Shmuel and Nagid and may, many others and some way also uh, uh, Levy. No, you 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 have you have many other example, mm-hmm. but I think that the difference between them and Abravanel is um, the uh, capacity to uh, transform um, the uh, biblical setting into uh, courts politics, not only here and there in the, uh, in the book, in the commentary, but really time and again, and making it really like the, the major trend in his way of writing. And that's, I think, the novelty, capacity to understand um, uh, biblical stories as uh, projected into Iberian court as making sense if you read them uh, within a historic if you project them into a historical and political context of the Iberian court and that's really something that is uh, a novelty. And many scholars uh, have paid attention to that and seen in that really the beginning of an historical understanding of the Bible. Not so much that he uh, was capable to understand uh, the historical realities behind the biblical text, as we maybe are able to do it nowadays with archaeology and so on. Mm-hmm. But uh, he was doing exactly the contrary, projecting uh, the biblical context into his present context and making uh, out of this comparison sense. Uh, of his own life, but also sense uh, of um, the biblical text and the biblical stories. Uh, So that's not history as we understand it uh, nowadays, but this is a kind of historical approach of the text. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. Okay, so I want to fast forward a little bit now to 1492. Um, So, of course, this year brought the Spanish expulsion. Can you talk a little bit about the effect that this had on Abravanel and his family in Castile? Yeah. So this is 
if there is one thing that is remembered of Abravanel, this is the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, Abravanel is the figure that stood uh, in front of uh, the kings, the Catholic kings, and tried to revoke the decree of, of expulsion unsuccessfully. Mm-hmm. He used all his uh, superiority, nobility, rhetorical capacities, uh, political capacities, and so on, and of course financial capacity to uh, change the decree and did not succeed. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and he wrote quite a lot about that. He shaped into uh, several autobiographical texts the way he interacted with the uh, Castilian and Aragonian kings. Um, This combination of a clear agency against the uh, decree, but also a clear and exceptional capacity to project after 1492 his story to the new scattered uh, Sephardic uh, Jews, that's what made the legend of Abravanel. Mm -hmm. He was active against the decree, that's for sure. He was not the only one active. But he was surely the, the one who succeeded to tell it in the most compelling way and to tell it again and again and to shape around his agency against the Catholic monarchs, the whole scattered Sephardic communities after the expulsion. Mm -hmm. That's something that he made consciously and that is only understandable if you take into consideration what, as I, what I already explained before, that he had a very conscious approach of why and how we make books mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. we interact with public and with uh, communal, communal memory. Mm-hmm. So now if we, uh, if we uh, take into consideration the impact, the impact is very clear. Abravanel in Iberian Peninsula is basically a financier and a merchant. He wrote some tracts and surely lots of letters and, uh, and a few commentaries, but he's basically during these uh, 56 years in Castile, he is 
he is a banker, financier, and a merchant. After 1492, he becomes mostly a writer mm-hmm. in the uh, in the Italian peninsula. He will have here and there political uh, roles, but very marginal. And he becomes um, a prolific writer uh, and a prolific diffuser of his own image and his conceptions through the medium of uh, Jewish commentaries. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a very that's a very important shift. He's uh, shifting from an agency that is based on social and economical status to an agency that is based on religious and intellectual uh, status. That's basically a, a tremendous shift. And that in in 12 in 16 years he will be able to build an incredible work uh, really uh, spanning uh, thousands of pages uh, in which he produced an effect of leadership mm-hmm. an effect of leadership that is not of course he's still rich he still has money but this is not like uh, what was happening before in Iberia, where he was really at the court. He really had uh, direct power. Here, the power is mediated through words, through literary interaction with his audience. Mm-hmm. Maybe this yeah. is also the opportunity to say one word that he was not only writing, he was also, um, of course, preaching a lot. He was giving lectures. He was talking to the people. We have a lot of uh, uh, references to the fact that many of his books are based on previous lectures, preachings in synagogues or in uh, uh, circles in his uh, his, uh, home. So that's also something that we have to uh, take into consideration. That's really fascinating. I actually, I didn't know that about um, the, yeah, how, how some of his, his writing was almost, you know, born out of this, yeah, this sort of lecture format and style. That's very interesting. Um, you meant, you were talking a little bit about uh, leadership and Abravanel and how he kind of conceived of his own leadership and how he utilized various aspects of his personality to, or, you know, his career to lead. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit actually about the writings of Abravanel on King Solomon, um, about whom he wrote very extensively. And I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about what Abravanel found so noteworthy about King Solomon in particular and why he devoted so much time to, um, to writing about this particular figure. Yeah. So that's the part of his uh, commentary on the former prophet that he wrote really just after the expansion. That's, mm-hmm. we know it really uh, perfectly clear. 
he arrives in Naples uh, and um, he writes uh, this uh, this commentary uh, relying uh, partly on uh, sources that he picks from uh, Arama, but not only from that. And many of maybe writings that he brought from uh, Castile, but he devotes really uh, tens, uh, more than tens, uh, maybe 50 or 60 pages or even more, I would say, to uh, the narrative of uh, Solomon kingship. Mm-hmm. What interests him there is a um, figure that is very similar to himself. Abravanel, contrary to Maimonides, is not identifying himself so much with the kind of leadership of Moses. Mm-hmm. Moses is, is writing generally a bow about already in Ateret's Kenim, uh, speaking of the ancient, but also in, um, in the commentary on the former prophets, uh, these former prophets, and of course, Solomon himself, King Solomon himself. He's not interested in this greatest uh, prophet, and especially the greatest prophet, uh, Moses, but he is interested in uh, kind of intermediary figures of figures that are not completely considered prophet, but more leaders uh, mm. that are between prophet and leaders, and with, with whom he is identifying himself. Because Abravanel, at the end of uh, the day, is not a rabbi. Mm-hmm. He cannot, he never wrote responsa on uh, halachic uh, uh, questions. He refers, of course, to uh, halachic questions in his commentaries. But he knows that he, had, he has no rabbinic authorities. Mm-hmm. In many ways, he has also no scientific authority like uh, Maimonides and uh, Gersonides and so on. His only authority is a kind of authority that is linked to money, power, and rhetoric. That's what he has. And he finds in the figure of Solomon and especially uh, the, the, uh, the wisdom of Solomon, something that is very similar to what he thinks of himself. Mm. Solomon mm. received wisdom immediately. Uh, he is not a philosopher that is preparing himself toward a truth. And by progression, receiving more and more the truths and the prophecy. No, that's not the model. Mm-hmm. The model mm-hmm. is a model in which, uh, by an act of divine providence, divine intervention, he already um, uh, reached 
the highest uh, intellectual capacity. And now what he has to do is to act, to transform uh, his environment through his actions, through poetry, through uh, economical actions, through his way of ruling, and so on and so on. And that's very typical of uh, Abravanelian uh, ideology, in which knowledge is not pursued in itself, for truth itself, but for reaching um, leadership for himself, and also uh, for impacting, uh, of course, at court, but also in his community. So that's the reason why a Solomon is so important for him. He incarnates the, this uh, a notion of prophecy and in which the um, contemplation is less prominent and in which the practical dimension becomes uh, the most important part of the figure. This, uh, and this has to do with um, many discussion of the time about magic. Mm. And magic becomes this capacity of transforming the natural and human environment by knowledge, but by knowledge that is not contemplative in its finality, but active and transformative. And that's exactly, uh, uh, so he has uh, very interesting pages about administration, very interesting pages about uh, why a Solomon succeeded to uh, reach uh, wealth, uh, the wealth of the nation without making war. And he has also a lot of pages about the building of, of the temple. Mm -hmm. And in all these, uh, these discussions, he is uh, trying to shift from an earlier tendency toward more contemplation to uh, uh, an approach that is more magic, that is more uh, transformative of the reality, that is more pragmatic. Mm. Wow. That, the way that you contextualize, I mean, what really stood out to me just, you know, and my own with my own personal interests and everything, but the way that you just contextualize the Bravanel um, in comparison to Maimonides, the Rambam, and also Gersonides, that was really fascinating to me. Um, and kind of the the areas of Judaism, really, that, that Abravanel focused on and how all of his other multidisciplinary education really like played into that. That was very interesting. So thank you for that. Um, I actually had just a general question about his biblical commentaries were Abravanel's commentaries ever translated into any other languages? They they were written in Hebrew, of course, but yeah, were they translated and disseminated to um, people who spoke other languages? Yes, yes, very early on. So let's begin with that. That Abravanel is multilingual. Mm -hmm. He we we have we have quite few of his uh, Portuguese 
letters, but we have to imagine that he wrote surely every day tens of letters. Uh, that if we had all these letters uh, in Portugal and in Castile and surely maybe in Italy, this would be hundreds of letters. Uh, we have also to consider that his son, Yehuda Bravenel, wrote a very influential book in Italian already. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and of, of course, his, the writing that we have now are of him are all in Hebrew, unless one, unless the, the economical document and one very interesting uh, uh, humanist letter uh, of which I spoke a little bit. Mm-hmm. By uh, the, uh, the end of the 16th uh, century and during the 17th and 18th century, Abravanel is uh, becoming a rising star among uh, Christian Hebraist. He uh, is referred in dozens of tractats of this uh, of this Hebraist. He's also referred to by a lot of uh, Christian, uh, Catholic, and Protestant theologians, and he's translated, let's say, at least half of his works are translated into Latin mm. in the 17th and 18th century. So Abravanel had an incredible Christian, Catholic, and Protestant reception uh, in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century. Mm-hmm. That's a new area into which now I'm, uh, I'm working, but uh, the, this is uh, this is really amazing. There was a great Christian reception of Abravanel, and along to that, he was printed time and again uh, in the 16th century. Almost all his writings are uh, printed uh, in Italy and in the Ottoman Empire, mm-hmm. and then there are some of it is are reprinted. Uh, in um, in um, in Amsterdam and in Hamburg, where you have these uh, Sephardic uh, communities, and later, of course, uh, uh, in various uh, other uh, Jewish places, so that his work was very well disseminated uh, throughout uh, the early modern uh, period. Uh, and it was rediscovered um, in some way by the end of the 19th century um, and during uh, the 20th century. Uh, by the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, it was rediscovered, uh, especially around the question, is it uh, an important Jewish philosopher? And later, uh, the question that was raised, especially after uh, with the Zionism, is it uh, the important Jewish uh, historical and political figure? 
And there were, there were a lot of debates about that. Uh, Netanyahu, Benson Netanyahu, uh, wrote extensively about that. And uh, by the end of the 20th century, um, uh, scholars shift to another perspective about, uh, about Bravana. Not if he is it... Uh, is he a great philosopher? Is he a great uh, Jewish leader? But uh, is he a, a fascinating cultural figure, cultural agent? And uh, then uh, we became we we came to embrace him again as um, as figure as representing. Many aspects of Jew of, of of Jewish lives, uh, modern early modern Jewish lives, and uh, that the fact that he has this Portuguese side, this uh, Castilian side, Italian side, uh, so many influences in his uh, in his uh, writings. So this multiplicity, this cultural multiplicity, fascinated. Uh, late uh, moderns like we are, uh, and that's a little bit the story of uh, a Brahmanan reception. Mm -hmm. And it is so interesting to read the, um, I mean, recent within the last 50 years, the scholarship on a Brahmanel and how you can see all of those debates playing out. Like you mentioned, Netanyahu, there's also a fascinating book by Eric Lowy, um, about Abravanel, and then of course yours, which which I found especially interesting because of the the inclusion of the letters and the um, literary analysis of that correspondence was very unique to me. Um, and but taken together, all of these works, you really see that, like you said, this kind of shifting portrait, shifting reception, um, and it's it's very interesting. Kind of on that note of the of the scholarship, um, there has been a lot of debate about the ideal way to read Abravanel's exegetical writings. Should we view him as a traditionalist or as an innovator? Um, is he some combination? How do you how do you respond to that? What do you think? Yeah, the, the whole book is, my book is really trying to, 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 to deal with this question and a lot also to, to reframe the question. Mm -hmm. um, these tensions between um, some conservative and innovative aspect of uh, Abravanel uh, were shaped by uh, shifting ideologies. The first ideology was uh, this notion of um, Western rationality. Does Abravanel contribute to science and to the progress of uh, Western rationality? Yes, in some aspect, no, in some other aspect. Like, well, the, 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 after that, the question was, is he uh, contributing to um, the Jewish history to in, in a significant way in, in terms of modernization, of uh, nationalism, and so on, and uh, Jewish modern politics. Um, 
Well, and then the question was more about a uh, cultural aspect of, 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 of Abravana. The problem with uh, this tension between the conservative and innovative aspects is that it is so dependent on the ideology that you are adopting that it is not, uh, um, I think most of the time, it is not really well framed. So what I try to do uh, in my book is to make the life and thought of a Bravanel as much as possible in dialogue with uh, his historical uh, and intellectual environment in order to be able to understand this tension not only from uh, our perspective, is, uh, is Abravanel good for Jews? Is Abravanel good for, uh, for uh, Western rationality or for, uh, uh, or for uh, cultural pluralism or for a new understanding of religion? These questions are interesting, but for me are missing... Uh, the point that in Abravanel, with Abravanel, with the many documents we have, we have a possibility to re-engage into the question of the dialogue of Abravanel with his contemporaries and in order to overcome this ideological uh, framing of Abravanel. Uh, so I tried in this book really to show that some uh, conservative aspect maybe should be understood in another way and, and so on and so on. So I tried really to liberate Abravanel as much as possible from uh, this uh, modernist uh, approach uh, of Abravanel and trying to reach uh, the, the tension and the complexity of the figure by confronting him to uh, his environment. That's really uh, the, the credo of the book. Certainly. And, and I mean, I think... You, you just summed it up so well. He is such a complex figure, and I think that he needs to be treated as such, which I, you know, breaking down kind of this dichotomy of traditionalist versus modern is really key in order to appreciate that complexity. So I definitely can appreciate that. Um, we are just about out of time. So I wanted to just ask one final question, um, which is inspired by something that you say towards the end of the book that really caught my eye which is you mentioned that uh, 21st century readers might be able to identify particularly well with Abravanel. Why, why is that? Why do you think that from our vantage point now, we might find particular resonance in his writings? Yeah. My, my uh, argument there is that we are now in a position, let's say, of... Uh, a late modernity in which uh, the projects of uh, overcoming um, tradition, religion, uh, nature, and many 
data of the old world um, with a modern uh, framing, with a modern blueprint are not uh, believed with the same strength. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. we understand the tension between uh, this uh, modern projection and uh, the, the remaining and the, the strengths of uh, traditions and uh, or revived traditions. And um, so the failures of modernity help us to understand uh, the tensions in a Bravenel's life. Uh, and we are less, uh, I believe we are less uh, interesting, interested in a patronistic understanding of, uh, of, a, Bra- of a Bravenel saying, oh, well, he contributed uh, that uh, concept and uh, uh, and that interesting uh, republicanism to Jewish uh, to Jewish history, and that's it. The rest you can throw it to uh, the garbage. No, this uh, uh, we are interested uh, in the tensions, in the kind of subjectivity, in uh, good and bad uh, of these figures. We are int- interested in that because. Uh, we are faced to the fact that there is no superseding of this tension towards a perfect modern life. And in that sense, uh, the tension of a Bravenel's life becomes more understandable for ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's a very fascinating take on it. And and I I, I hope that with this, you know, with your new book and perhaps more scholarship that will continue to develop around Abravanel, that people will really take advantage of the opportunity to dive deep into this very fascinating figure um, and to learn more and and carefully consider his philosophy. So with that, we will we will wrap up. Thank you so much for your time today, Cedric. This was a really wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, McKenna. It was also for me a very interesting conversation and I hope people uh, will engage with the book and with Abravanel's writings. For sure. Okay, once again, I'm McKenna Mezzestrano and this was Cedric Cohen-Scully on Don Isaac Abravanel, an intellectual biography. (laughs) 